Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It is Monday, February 12th. This morning, we talk about the value-added world of agriculture, how one entrepreneur identified a new revenue stream for farmers instead of just feeding old crops to pigs. We talk about the idea of a sunshield in space with the University of Hawaii astronomer. Could the project reduce the Earth's temperature by three degrees? And an Emmy Award-winning writer talks about writing for the HBO series Succession and how artificial intelligence poses a threat to those working in film and television. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Value added, those are buzzwords you'll be hearing more about. Upcycling wasted fruit and paying farmers for spoiled mushy vegetables is the mission of Pony Askew. She started the Hawaiian Vinegar and Spice Company. Its mission is to divert old crops from the waste stream to contribute to adding value-added foods. The conversations Lillian Sang sat down with Askew to talk about Hawaii's agri-value movement. Our farmers can potentially throw away anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of all the food that they grow. And we're looking for ways to rescue that and upcycle it into other delicious products. It really ultimately, at the end of the day, increases the viability and success of our farmers by creating a second revenue stream from the stuff that they normally would throw away. Now, back in 2020, you and your husband were focused on your food event business, Street Grinds. But COVID happened. Yeah, so COVID happened, and although I'm certain that we could have found our way to being an essential program with feeding people, since we were very well known for gathering large groups around food trucks, but we had been really working on finding ways to bring the food trucks and the farmers together, and in that process, we were learning more and more about our farming community and our food systems in Hawaii. And the statistic that I just shared with you, Lillian, is really what struck home for me. And so when COVID happened, we were already on this journey of really figuring out, you know, how we can improve farmer success and then reduce waste. And so my husband is a lifetime brewer. From the day that I met him, he was making meads, which are getting more popular, honey wines. And he was just a real all-around geek in fermentation. So I had learned that vinegar is basically sour wine. And so we really started this journey of making vinegar. I got so excited because to make wine, you have to aggregate a large volume of whatever it is that you're turning into wine. So right now in his fermenter, for example, he has cacao nectar that he's rescuing from a a local cacao farmer. And we're about to make our first round, which will be about 15 gallons of cacao nectar vinegar. Um, And that was something that would have ended up in the waste stream that we were able to purchase from this farmer. And he is really excited about working with us in the future, actually, because he sees 900 gallons of cacao nectar that he would have wasted now becoming a revenue stream for him. And we get to make delicious Hawaiian cacao nectar vinegar, which tastes like peaches and lychee, had a baby. It's delicious. I'm excited. You know, the cacao industry and Hawaiian chocolate, along with our coffee industry, are working really hard to put Hawaii on the map. And this is one way that we can support them by making products out of their waste streams. And that's just two types of of rescue products that I can mention right now. There's so many more. Right, right. You're moderating Eat, Think, Drink, Coming up next mm-hmm. Tuesday evening, keynote speaker is Grant Very, chief executive of the Food Bowl, a leading organization in the value-added movement. He's also part of the New Zealand Food Innovation Network. And this mindset of value-added, it's not a new thing. You know, what I learned from the Food Bowl, and I was fortunate enough to actually tour the Food Bowl several years ago, way before COVID, and It was a really neat way to see how New Zealand has, you know, really supported the makers in their communities by creating these innovation spaces around food production. And it's not food production from the perspective of the farmer that's harvesting and washing and boxing, but it's kind of taking that waste product and and making it into something new. And so 
it really helped me wrap my mind around what working with the college system, because this program that this value-added center that's in Wahiwa was really inspired by the food bowl. So we are able to hear from the guy that sits behind the desk and helps to orchestrate all these wonderful makers in New Zealand at the Eat, Think, Drink event. I'm really excited for everyone to hear sort of the inspiration. And New Zealand's food systems and how they work with farmers and small business owners is just such a fascinating thing, and it's really exciting to hear. So you're helping us color in the lines. When I first see the food bowl, I'm actually thinking like a, a place to go eat. But what you're saying is the food bowl is actually an initiative, a program. So it's more than just a building, though. It's also a concept. And you're seeing this idea now migrating over to Hawaii. What are those parallels that you you're seeing? So the really cool thing about the food bowl is that they um, they take the the risk from the small business owner um, by purchasing the large scale manufacturing equipment that my small business would never be able to afford at this moment in its time of of growth. We're only a few years old, so they're able to buy the packaging equipment or the bottling line and and put it into their facility, and so. That inspiration is what Leeward Community College has brought over to the Wahiwa Value Added Center. Um, that It's 30,000 square foot, and it has multiple kitchens and rooms that provide that type of facility and usage that I wouldn't be able to buy even a, a large-scale juicer right now. And for us to make wine, we need the juice from the fruits that we rescue, and so right now we're hand-juicing everything. You know, so I cannot, my hands... And my fingers cannot wait for this value-added center to open, and so we can automate some of the process. Mm. Um, and, and this is what the food bowl is going to be talking about. Because I think that we just forget, as small business owners, how much goes into food manufacturing, and we get excited that we can mix up a pot of jam or jelly out of grandma's leftover mangoes and throw it in a recycled jar and call it a day, and, and maybe we can have a business from it. But there's so much more layers, so many more layers in it that when our small business owners, and this is what I was passionate about when I had street grinds, is not a, not seeing into the future of what the costs and expenses are for small business owners ultimately leads to their shuttering. And so this allows that to become revealed with minimal risk to the business owner. So me now as a small business owner starting all over again, I cannot wait for this place to open. Very nice. I'm just loving learning about how this innovation with resources, the success when you're increasing value. This is just really, really exciting. And to see that here in Hawaii, that people are recognizing this and they're helping make it possible and doable for small businesses, the entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. And the backbone of our food systems, which is our farmers. And so hopefully, eventually, our farmers will be inspired to be upcyclers of their own products that they have and they grow. And what normally goes to the pigs, I know it's challenging for them to create ultimately a second business model. But that literally was why the federal government called it value added products. And it was because the intention originally was meant to inspire farmers to add value to the produce that they are putting into the waste stream. And so, like, when you bought a bottle of our vinegar, you're actually supporting a farmer. You know, like, our company, although we're Hawaiian Vinegar and Spice Company, we're a company that's committed to making sure that our food systems are secure. And over COVID, we felt the, the pinch of, of, you know, the challenges that we have with our food systems and that we import 90% of everything that we eat. Meanwhile, our farmers are throwing away 30 to 40 percent of everything that they grow. And it's kind of like, how can we capture that and increase the farmer's success? If they're more successful, hey, maybe they can grab another acre or two or three or four or 100 and grow more food for us so we can reduce our imports. And Pony, you've always made a point to never get these waste products for free, right? Absolutely. We don't like taking it for free. Our farmers were first really confused and rightfully so assumed that that's what we were looking for, and it is not the point. The point is we created this business to support them, 
And so we're going to do everything in our power to provide a reasonable amount of money to something that would have ended up to the pigs or tilled back into the ground. And that is going to be forever the core of what we do. So we hope that we can just completely not just buy from them, but create demand so that they can go out and grow more food for us. And then as the trickle-out effect should be is growing for our our state and our residents. Mm. And Pony, any fun facts or something that you've learned during your journey? Or what is the most popular flavor of vinegar that you guys produce? Oh my goodness, I'm glad you asked. So we actually made a product called Shrubs. Um, We made this product because... People are sometimes at a loss of what to do with vinegar. Shrubs are drinking vinegars, and it's a real concentrated, sweet vinegar syrup that you can add to mocktails and cocktails, take as a gut health shot. And that product line has become the most popular thing that we sell at our vinegar brewery in Wahiwa. People love the pineapple mint, and so what we'll do is eat pineapple and mint the mint we love so much from our farmer out in Mokuleia, they're called Wailua Growers, and we'll steep it for six to eight weeks in this vinegar. And then after that's done, we'll also add organic cane sugar to it. It's, I'm telling you, the most refreshing soda you can find for under 10 grams of sugar. And so we can't keep those on the shelf. It's a really exciting time, but it's also we can't wait for that value-added center to open because there's only so much pineapple that we can juice and get in a bottle. And pineapple's gnarly to your fingers, that acid or something, right? I know. It really is. It's fun, but it's a lot. And we weren't expecting, which we're we're so blessed to have such a great response to our product, but we weren't expecting it so soon. Oh, nice. So those shrubs, tasty, healthy for your gut, and available locally and maybe in March on the shelves longer because you can keep it on the shelves because you're producing more. All right, Pony. Well, our time is winding down. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, I would just love to encourage anyone to have a look at what's going on with Leeward Community College's Product Development Center in Wahiwa. It's a great and fantastic place to concept your products that you want to develop. And if you can make it to Eat, Think, Drink, please come out. We're going to be talking all about value-added food products and listening to some of the wisest people on the planet, in my opinion, in New Zealand and how they work through their food systems and support small business. That was Hawaiian Vinegar and Spice Company co-founder Pony Askew talking to HPR's Lillian Song. Askew will be monitoring the Hawaii Agricultural Foundation series Eat, Think, Drink, an event which will be held next Tuesday, February 20th. We'll have pictures and links on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. Colon cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed in the United States. The overall rates of diagnosis have increased for younger adults. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the signs and symptoms to watch out for. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants and its Legacy of Aloha Foundation, supporting the Maui community and assisting those affected by the wildfires. More about how to help by searching tsrestaurants.com Legacy of Aloha. The New York Times recently published an article about the growing popularity of building a sunshield in outer space to help solve the climate crisis. 
Basically, the idea is to build a kind of giant beach umbrella to float in space to shield the Earth from solar radiation and to counter global warming. With our planet experiencing historically hot temperatures in recent years, the idea of a sun shield is becoming more plausible. Uh, Ishvan Zapudi is an astronomer at the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy. He published an article last summer on his idea for the sun shield. He talked with HPR's Russell Subiano this morning. Global warming is due to the fact that the Earth's atmosphere um, has all these greenhouse gases now and it retains more energy from the constant flux that the sun is um, producing. And if you block a little bit of that, and actually the canonical value is, you know, used in most papers and in my paper as well, is 1.7%. So you have to block a tiny percentage of the total radiation, and then you can restore the kind of balance that was in pre-industrial times. So the idea is that if you block just a little bit of the sun, sun's radiation that hits the Earth, you can restore the balance before we started to emit greenhouse gases. Right. And the article said that if just 1.7% of the sun's radiation is blocked, which is the, the percentage that you just gave as well, that it would be enough to cool the planet by nearly three degrees Fahrenheit. How would that work? First of all, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm an astronomer. But with that caveat, I think the Earth system is a very nonlinear system. So you have to treat it with, you know, with respect, actually, with, with, with caution. And I think the 1.7% is the most likely value, but nobody knows that for sure. So, for instance, in my case, I would strongly advocate any kind of space-based geoengineering that it should be modular and reversible. And by modular, I mean that, you know, you can, you know, you don't start by cutting off 1.7%, but you cut off a little bit less, and then you measure the results on Earth, and then you slowly grow it. And reversible means that you can, you know, if you overshoot, you can immediately reverse the effect. So it's it's a little bit like your thermostat. If you feel that the temperature in your house is too cold, then you change the thermostat. But if it's too warm, then you make it stronger. You know, it's, it's very similar. So you, you have to have this kind of feedback of measurement. Just because the Earth is nonlinear, you know, like Earth's weather system is very nonlinear. And I don't think... Again, I'm not a climate scientist, but I don't think even climate scientists and professionals understand it well enough that they could say, oh, this is how much you have to cut off to get the perfect results. It would have to be something that is adjusted depending on what's going exactly. on down here on Earth. I think the okay. consensus is that it should be, you know, around one to two percent, so mm -hmm. a tiny amount. Okay. But, you know, I would start with half a percent, see what happens and grow it from there. You know, that's the safe way of doing it. I think we all know that, you know, the, the planet is getting hotter. We've had some record temperatures in, in recent years. What led you to this idea, to the idea that you, that you published in your paper? Okay. So what led me to this idea originally, actually, I was already thinking about my sabbatical year and I was thinking about projects that I wouldn't do in normal years and actually i was working on a spaceship propulsion idea and i was reading about solar sails and i realized that you know a graphene sail would be very very light and you could very easily put it up but i also realized the solar radiation pressure would blow it away immediately so that's why people are not considering it and that's when the idea struck me that you know you can have a counterweight that is closer to the sun, because the closer the weight is to the sun, the smaller weight will have the same effect. Then the actual screen can be closer to us, because the closer the screen is to us, the smaller screen will have the same effect, you know, because you know, the screen is closer, then it covers a bigger percentage of the sun's surface. So basically, in all previous ideas, the weight was concentrated at the screen. But if you put the weight close to the sun and the screen closer to us, you can gain a huge factor in weight. And the weight is the most important cost. So one of my colleagues commented that with 
this idea science fiction starts to meet reality because now you know this is like first of all the whole system is 100 times lighter it means 100 times cheaper and then only 1% of it has to come from earth so that's another 100 so that's a 10000 factor in terms of weight that has to come from earth and for the counterweight because it's just a dumb ballast you could use rocks basically you could use um, an asteroid, you could try to modify the orbit of a suitable asteroid, or you could use just rocks or dust from the moon, which is 20 times cheaper than coming from Earth. So even so if you if you take all these factors into account, it now seems realistic that you know in in a few decades from now we can do it. You know, it's still we're still probably talking about a lot of money, but mm -hmm. at least a reasonable amount. When you think about the shade portion, how big would that? Does it have to be big enough, you know, for the shadow to cover the whole Earth, or you only look in the shade, maybe part of the Earth? I mean, that's that's kind of a design parameter, so it can vary. But but one of the canonical design that I had would have a three hundred kilometer radius, and viewed from Earth, it would be it it would look only like a sunspot you know sun has already sunspots if you if you if you watch it through a through a telescope of course you need a a very strong neutral density filter to not get blind but right. if you actually look at the surface of the sun it has sunspots so this would look like a a sunspot and of course if it's a modular design with many smaller shields then it would be like a few or many tiny sunspots which cover just you know one or two you know between one and two percent of the sun so okay. it would not be like a shade over earth that's not how you want to imagine it you, you imagine it like it's very far from us and it's just essentially for everyday people you wouldn't even notice anything mm -hmm. all you would notice is that the weather is not as hot if this project was successful what does that mean for the efforts that we're making down here to reverse climate change. Specifically, does it mean that we can go ahead and continue burning coal and oil and gas and other drivers of climate change? Or is this solution in conjunction with the things that we are already doing or, or trying to do down here to combat climate change? My personal view is that we have to do everything. So this would be like one component of the solution rather than the solution, because this is still a very expensive and you know big project and of course you only consider this i think now at this point you have to consider this because even if we stopped emitting co2 and other greenhouse gases today like completely stop already we have we almost reached this 1.5 limit you know there, there are already maybe irre irreversible changes you know with the for instance the circulation in the oceans and then the ice sheet a lot of ice has melted and earth is already put on a path that if we changed if we, if it stopped today it might not be enough okay. and of course even stopping today that's completely unrealistic perhaps if we work really hard at it you know in the next you know 20 years we can lower our mission a lot but I, it's very difficult to imagine that you can 100% stop putting CO2 in the atmosphere. So I think you have to consider all the possibilities. You have to consider sequestration. You have to consider, of course, besides reduction, you have to consider adaptation and you have to consider geoengineering. And I think the responsibility of scientists is to really um, think through all these possibilities. So that's why I was thinking about this. I always thought, you know, even though this is not my main field, I'm a cosmologist, but I thought that this is our duty to try to contribute to solutions. So when I had this idea, I, I was uh, very happy and I worked it out to, to see what happens. And so far, it seems it's it's one of the possible solutions. I'm not saying this will be the solution, but I think we have to, I think it, we have to basically think through every single avenue because at this point, we don't know what will happen and how it will happen. Ishvan Zapudi, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 
That was UH astronomer Ishvan Zapudi talking with HBR's Rosa Subiano about the increasing popularity of building a sun shield in outer space. Uh, in the scientific community. We'll have a link in the uh, to the New York Times article on the conversation page of our website after the show. Ground control to Major Tom This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're asking you about one of our state's favorite pastimes, gardening. And with a growing season that lasts most of the year, that's a lot of gardening. Not that you necessarily have to get down and dirty to enjoy the fruits, vegetables, and flowers of labor. Well, at least not your labor, because there are many public gardens around Hawaii where you can ooh and ah and then go home. Biophila, the... uh, Human tendency to commune with nature uh, may be the antidote to modern life's screen time. Get off your phone and get back to the garden. There are botanical gardens on every island. And for today's backyard quiz, we're looking for the name of the botanical garden that didn't start out as a public place, a public space, but because of a forward-thinking person, it became one of the first. Here's a hint: if you're thinking it's on the garden aisle. Uh, it is not. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. alum Susan Stanton won her second Primetime Emmy Award recently. She's a producer and writer on the HBO series Succession, which was named Outstanding Drama Series. It centers around the rich and powerful Roy family, led by patriarch Logan Roy, who runs the multi-billion dollar company Waystar Royco. Throughout the series' four-year run, audiences watched as the four Roy children vied with other family members and company executives for control of the company. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Stanton about writing for the series and why last year's strike was so important. How do you write for a family that is so different from families as we know it here? Well, I mean, I think it is and it isn't, you know? Like, in some ways, I think that you could look at them and, and say, oh, they're despicable, and there are. And I think even as we progress in the show, for various characters, we've had them be really despicable but hopefully have a heart and then I think at times where maybe we feel too much for a character we have to sort of have them like counterbalance it but in a way there a lot of people have told me that they've seen things the power struggle the things in a lot of different families you know like in Hawaii and other places like places families that have you know a family business or a complicated sibling structure I mean you know the way that I think like let's say a, a parent dies and there's an estate dispute you know or a pressure from an oldest child to take over or pressure from maybe like a daughter to caretake more. Like I feel like these power imbalances in the siblings, like who's the favorite. I mean, I think it's on a larger, more Baroque scale because they're the children of billionaires. And so you could say it couldn't be more different than us, but I think in some ways they're also actual siblings, like even in the physicality of the characters playing the siblings, like they'll wrestle or they'll do like silly voices that maybe they did when they were, you know, eight. And so there's ways in which it couldn't be more different. And then I think there's ways in which that it's familiar. And for the writers of the show, I mean, none of us grew up anywhere close to any of that. But we know we all put sort of 
our family stories or childhood memories or relationships. You know, like it's kind of a stew where we take real historical events and events from the news, but also things that have happened kind of in our own lives or to, you know, other friends and it kind of all feeds it and, and gets changed. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I'm so inside of it that I couldn't say, but I, I think the way that people are connecting to the show is because maybe it does remind them of a complicated sibling dynamic or maybe from a distant father who they admire, you know, or a separated mother. Like, I feel like some of these stories are still a part of it. There's times in which we'll take a look at at politics or top-down things or a merger or just some things where you, you might read about it in the Wall Street Journal. And then I think we'll also try to look at things that are really familiar and actually like very silly because it's a comedy. So I think there are times in which scenarios will get uh, very, very ridiculous. I mean, it's a, you know, or it's a, I would say it's a hybrid. It's a drama and it's a comedy, but the some of the, the heights it reaches comedy-wise are, are very ridiculous. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but was there anything specific that you wrote into the series, whether it was a character or a particular quirk or a dialogue exchange that was distinctly you or came directly from you? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, so many things. I mean, you know, we all worked as a team, but I don't know. I mean, it feels weird to give you a laundry list. I was proud that I gave Tom Walmsgans last name because that became uh, a thing in the show. Uh-huh. I, actually, this is very Hawaii. In season four, I got the Roy's to do karaoke, which was, I feel like, a real Hawaii victory for me. I kept trying to get us to shoot in Hawaii, and, and we almost did a couple mm-hmm. times, but it, it ended up not being practical for our shooting schedule. So we ended up in Barbados. But I was like, let's get them to Hawaii, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I had my own episodes and different storylines. But no, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of a lot of things, I think, uh, like either research ideas I brought in or personal storylines. But, you know, it all becomes a hybrid where things get, get morphed. Um, Bore on the Floor, which was a thing people were really interested in. I had done a theater writing retreat next to a corporate hunting lodge. And so I saw executives hunting deer. And then we were shooting off season. And so I was researching, like, what animals can you kill in March? And so deer became, you know, boar. And then it sort of went from there. Tom! Yes? Sit on the floor. It's fun. Seriously? Yeah, it's a game. Boar on the floor. I really, I feel... Get down! Bore on the floor. Bore on the floor. Kendall, ring the troops. Bore on the floor. Again, stories or research or even just brainstorming from our lives became big parts of the show. The last time we talked, you shared your journey on how you became a writer and a producer on Succession, how Jesse Armstrong liked your work and, and brought you into the writing room. What I'm curious about now, now that I've seen much of the series, what is it that attracted you to the series, aside from this incredible opportunity to work on a major show on a major network? I was a big admirer of Jesse for a really long time. I mean, I love Peep Show. I loved just the the savagery of the writing and, and in the thick of it and a lot of just the ways that I think Brits, but him in particular, can really can really write satire and still have it be dramatic. There was just something about the writing and the execution that I just thought was so special and different. So that was that was something I think in the show. I think it was exciting for me to be in London as well. The writers' room was in London, and I mean, what the Hawaii of it is like? It's so far away; it's half a world away. But even in New York, I think, and being an Amer- American, it's hard to have international conversations. And so I love that it was a British and American room, and we we're having these conversations about American media and what that looks like. And there are people looking at it from the outside and people from the inside. And I think also just being from Hawaii, it's like different than being in a more traditionally American. And so I, I also kind of felt like I had one foot in, one foot out in terms of looking at the broader, like the sort of the continent of it. It, it. It's a different perspective when you're from Hawaii, I think. And so there's a distance, I think, geographically and just also in terms of looking at what America is and, and how the news cycle is, how money and power is, you know? And so, yeah, I, I think it was, you know, it's been the ride of my life. And I think, especially from the beginning, I could tell the rigor of the show, the level of the research we were asked to do, but also we wanted to do the level of acting. Like, it just felt like from the very beginning, like everything just felt like it was on a really high level and it it stayed that way. And I, I've done other shows since. And so it was my first show. And so in some ways, I feel like I came in 
really, really lucky. And then I've done other other shows that I've loved, but I've never been a part of another show where we've done as many rewrites on drafts. We've done as much research. We've, you know, it's been, we're on set every single day of shooting, writing new lines. And so we're just kind of attacking it constantly. Everyone's trying to make it as good as it can possibly be. The actors are sending questions and doing their own research. And, you know, and so I think it's just accumulation of everybody bringing absolutely everything they have to it in a way that I've never seen on anything else to the same level. I know it exists, but I haven't really felt just like from every single department. It's been very moving. Last year, we saw the Writers Guild go on strike for 148 days. Pay is always a a big component whenever organizations go on strike. But I know that the use of artificial intelligence in movies and television was a big issue for both the writers and the actors. Can you help our listeners understand why artificial intelligence is such a real threat to your profession and, and to others in the entertainment industry? Yeah, I mean, it's really scary. I know this happens with college professors for students where chat GPT kind of thing where it's like you can have an AI create a song or a story and create a version of that. And the technology continues to improve. So for instance, like I know like for soap operas, maybe you feed in 40 years of a soap opera and then you get something that's pretty good. And then you just hire a writer to punch it up. You know, like you still need a human, but you could get along pretty far before you actually hire a writer to write it. So maybe on like the highest level, the sort of like Nobel Prize winning or or just very high level of like television writing, you're like, okay, you can't fake that. But, you know, I mean, you have robots that can play chess on an extreme level, you know, so you get these simulations that are continuing to increase. And so I think that was the scary thing is just feeling like we're just going to be hired to kind of like rewrite things or even that AI was going to generate a story that you get paid to adapt. And I'm sure you've heard the model of writing, the way streaming has worked, like the amount of money that writers were were receiving had already declined proportionately just because of the model had changed in the streaming. And then for actors too, I mean, this was more for, for background actors, but it's a way a lot of actors make their living. The majority of SAG, it's that everyone thinks about, you know, A-list movie stars, but that's not the case. And it's also a way a lot of actors get their training. And there was an idea of like, you can scan actors and it's kind of like the background people in a video game and they'll pay them, I don't know the amount, like $200 and then have their likeness forever, you know, it's right. kind of like a Black Mirror episode. And they do that now even for crowd scenes. They'll have certain, you know, extras in the background. They'll tile them in a big crowd scene. And I guess in some ways with COVID and practicality, that makes sense. But yeah, it just things were moving in a really scary direction. And I think the guild was kind of saying, we're worried about this. And their counter offer, at least initially, was like, we'll let you talk about it with us for one meeting a year. That was their counterpoint. We're like, please promise you won't replace us with AI. And they said, well, you can talk to us about it once a year. Hmm. And we're not going to do anything to limit technology. And, you know, I don't know. I understand in certain ways that position, but in terms of just it being an expression of humanity and empathy. And, you know, it's just like, do you really need robots to do this aspect of it just to save money? That the whole point is we're trying to reflect our culture, our society, like tell stories. You know, it's a deeply, deeply human thing that you're trying to save money and have robots do. So it's, it was a pretty scary debate. I think it was one of the biggest sticking points for the strike and something that we were fighting really hard on. I think the pay was, was another big thing, but I think for me and a number of other people, it was just trying to have protections against AI. And it felt like this was the one time where we could really push back against that. You know, the last time we really had a longer strike was in some ways to get health insurance and get a pension plan. And that has helped so many writers and it helped a lot of writers through the strike as well. So I don't know. I'm glad to be on the other side of it. We're still sort of feeling the effects of it. But, I'm, you know, it was it was a long one, but I'm glad we're through it. Susan Stanton, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. That was writer Susan Stanton talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the impact of artificial intelligence on Hollywood writers. Stanton says she's currently working on a new play with Maui director Mina Marita. Uh, Stanton says her hope is to be at the helm of her own TV series someday. (laughs) 
Support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, partnering with water protectors such as Sierra Club of Hawaii and Waiola Alliance to permanently close the Red Hill fuel tanks. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Oren J. Sofer, author of Your Heart Was Made For This. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about our capacity to respond effectively to today's complex world. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. A new exhibit just opened at the Honolulu Museum of Art. It features black and white photographic images, portraits of people collected around the theme, We Are Not American. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us to talk about the show. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and you know, I found out about this uh, by going to Kaimiki Camera. You know, I, I saw some of those images, very powerful. And I found out about this exhibit through social media. Mm -hmm. And seeing these photographs, they're very intimate. They're very straightforward, life-size photographs. And this new exhibit at the Honolulu Museum of Art is called Aua, which means uh, to hold fast or to never be caught. And Aua features 108 life-size portraits of Native Hawaiians who are community leaders. And when you walk into the exhibit, you see cultural practitioners, kumuhula, scholars, and activists. Um, I recognize uh, several faces um, there. And with these life-size uh, photographic portraits, they, there are smaller words across their faces that says, we are not American, and hey, Hawaii mau a mau, and that means I am Hawaiian for now and forever. And Kapolani Landgraf is the eyes behind the lens. She photographs black and white images, and she has expertise in film photography. She said that this has been the toughest project for her. Because when I started, not everyone, but a lot of people didn't want to participate. So they didn't feel comfortable with saying, we are not American, and to put it on their face. So if you look on it, because there was so much uncertainty about it. I added hey Hawaii Mao Mao to give it a little bit more reaffirming who they are too. But that was really hard. <laughs> so I mean when I started I thought well maybe I'm lucky I'm gonna get like eight photographs. I recognize that laugh because that's the same laugh that I also give when trying to find sources as well. <laughs> but you know she and she thought she was gonna have eight but she ended up having over 100, 108 to be exact. And um, this is something new to me. In the gallery, um, I didn't know Kapolani Landgraf is the one who took the portrait that's pretty well known of the late Haunani K. Trask, um, the Native Hawaiian activist and scholar. Um, this is also another fun fact is that like um, even growing up um, studying Pacific Island studies, knowing Haunani K. Trask and reading her book uh, from a Native daughter, I always kind of um, pictured her to be very like serious and very um, powerful when she speaks. But Kapolani, get, getting to know her through Kapolani, she has more of a softer side. I didn't know that Hanani actually likes her right side being taken of. So when you go to the gallery, you see kind of more of the straight on um, photos. But with Hanani, she's the only one that kind of has that side profile picture. But it's very intense, very beautiful. And Kapolani also said that, you know, there are folks around the nation and around the world who are asking her for that photo of Hanani. And, you know, Trask was the one who inspired this exhibit at HOMA, um, who Kapulani Landgraf described as fearless, but also saw a softer side to her, and her face is also in the exhibit. You see that other persona, but when you know her personally, it's a whole different thing. But what I learned about Haunani was she was always fearless, and no matter what. So that's what I see, like... That's why it's called um, being an aua is, is that to hold fast and to never be caught, right? So the aua fish was a fish that's slightly larger, it's an akule fish, but slightly larger. And when the fisherman sees it, they know there's a school of akule, but that aua is never caught. So in that way, that's like a metaphor for all of these people, right? So they, they you know, maybe now, not now, but 
at that time, I think it was a risk. I didn't know when the show was going to be up, what, what the reaction would be. I thought there was going to be a lot more negative reaction, but it wasn't, you know. So it's, you never know what's going to happen with what you do. But I think in respecting Honani, that, and I think, like, when she passed away, I didn't think it would affect me that much. But it really did, because I... I took photographs of her and those are the ones people were at, like all over the world people were contacting me for her image and um like it was like even like a year after they were still asking for me to see that impact that she made it was unbelievable you know it's funny because you know uh, having known her and covered her over many decades you know um i saw that she had a softer side but she always had this incredibly strong profile i thought with the images that i recall seeing so it's it's fun to hear, you know, that perspective uh, from the photographer. And also the fact that Honani, she left this legacy uh, behind and it resonated with a lot of people who are Kanaka Maoli um, here and even the ones that are in the photographs. I spoke with um, two people actually who are in the story that aired today. Um, I spoke with um, Zachary Ikaika, Bantolina and Puni Jackson. And what I found out through interviewing them is Zachary was 11 and Puni was 17 when they attended that centennial commemoration of the American throw of the Hawaiian monarchy. That was in 1993. And that's when they heard how K. Trask's speech, and um, there was one um, where she was saying, we are not American over and over again. That's what they remember. And here's Zachary's recollection of that event. It was a big gathering. It was a, it was a big, I will say, reawakening event or a renaissance of our identity in 1993. And I remember my mother had brought me to Iulani Palace during that week, especially on January 17, 1993 that marked 100 years after the overthrow. And we participated or we sat in the rally and that rally where Dr. Haunani K. Trask was there speaking. And I remember that this one lady just being so bombastic in her speech rate. And I remember her saying, we are not American. And when she kept saying that, you see, the people at the rally at the Coronation Pavilion standing up, saying "ao" or clapping, right, in acknowledgement of that. Right? Even though I was young, my mom told me, okay, you know, just sit down and observe while she stand up. And because of that, that's when I understood that what I wasn't being told in school, right, is what's being told here, the truth. And so from that, from the age of 11, I started to then dive into my identity as Kanaka. Yeah, that's interesting because that was the only pa'a celebration. That was very, a very powerful march. And for Puni Jackson, um, when I spoke with her and having that story air, she kind of had more emotion behind her. She actually, um, when she, how she reacted to Haunani K. Trask in, um, uh, in her speech, the way that she was saying we are not American over and over again, saying that um, uh, we are born Hawaiian, we'll die as Hawaiians, we'll never be American. That's something that when I was interviewing Puni at the at the gallery, she started tearing up and she kind of was having this recollection that resonated with her about, you know, she didn't really know that she needed to hear that that many times. And when back to Zachary, he was saying this is like a reawakening for a lot of Native Hawaiians to actually hear that, um, especially like... Um, for what Zachary had told me, he didn't really get to learn about that part of the history in school. He kind of had to learn it, you know, through going out to these events and um, through Hamnani K. Trust, which a lot of people became her students later on. And these photographs, um, they don't have names of the people. Um, and Kapolani Landgraf did this on purpose. So you're kind of forced to come face to face with each person, all 108. They're all lined up. I'm not too sure how long it is. Um, I think if you're going to compare it to the newsroom, I want to say like maybe 10 to 30 newsrooms in like one gallery and these photos are hard print and so because there's no glasses to protect them uh kapalani she made a barrier made of zip ties in the shape of fish and each fish there's a name of someone's um kapuna and she did the, she did this intentionally to make it like a dna to have kapuna protect each individual in these photographs so it was very done beautifully um the zip ties are on the stanchions to kind of um, block folks from touching the photographs but it was like the symbol of protection. So it's interesting, but, but they don't have the names anywhere listed? 
who's included in this? I think that you'd have to talk to Kapolani Landgraf mm-hmm. for that, um, for each individual name. But I think she, as an artist, um, I can understand why she did that with not having the names in there, just so you can actually come face to face with those photos. Yeah, it'd be interesting though, because they're you want to find out who these people are. But yeah, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Cassie Ordonio with an arts and culture piece on the exhibit at the Honolulu Museum of Art entitled We Are Not American. Support for HBR comes from Maui Ocean Center, offering island families and individuals memberships providing year-round access to exhibits and educational programs. Learn more about memberships at MauiOceanCenter.com membership. HPR is hiring for a full-time membership manager. Are you experienced in nonprofit fundraising? A public radio superfan? This is the opportunity for you. Join HPR's growing and passionate team and apply by March 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Now it's time to plant the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we were looking for the oldest botanical garden in our state. There are more than 30 botanical gardens and arboretums throughout Hawaii. You had many choices, though the garden we are after is on Oahu. It's registered as a national historic location and began in 1855 as a private garden leased to William Hillebrand by Queen Kalama. Almost 30 years later, it was sold to a captain and his wife, and they continued to develop the garden and added to it. In 1930, the original five and a half acres were bequeathed to the city and county of Honolulu. Over the years, adjacent parcels were acquired, and the garden grew to nearly 14 acres. Over 75,000 people visit each year, and it's all because of Captain Thomas and Mary Foster and the Foster Botanical Garden, which opened to the public on November 30th, 1931. Thanks for uh, thanks to Miss Whitney Miyahiro's Hawaiian history students of uh, Sacred Hearts Academy for this idea for the quiz. We invite the community, individuals, and schools to participate in the Backyard Quiz and help us learn more about our island home. If you have an idea for one, you can send it to hawaiipublicradio.org. We had no winners on this one. We stumped you. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about a move to make school meals free for all students. Have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. The conversation is available as a podcast on our website, or you can find it at most places where you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.